Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning. Welcome. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic, and we're talking prisons today, specifically women's prisons. Should we build one? Do they work? If they don't work, why not? What's the goal of the prison in the first place? Is it just an extension of a justice justice system that doesn't work very well? And are there ways to do it better? We'll get into it all. From there, we'll head to D.C. for our weekly conversation with Bob Ney, and we'll ask him about Joe Biden's budget proposal and get the inside scoop on Fox News text messages from Tucker Carlson and others, among other D.C. subjects. We'll dig deeper into town meeting action, in, especially in Burlington, with Seven Days reporter Courtney Lambden. And then we will top it all off by talking movies. Yes, special movie show, because the Oscar telecast is coming up on Sunday. And if you're a movie fanatic, um, Sunday is your night. It'll go too long. It'll be too late. Uh, you'll wake up uh, with a hangover on uh, on Monday morning. But it's uh, and even with streaming and all sorts of other options uh, and the absurdity of the celebrity self-congratulations uh, that goes on on that show, uh, it's still fun if you're a movie buff. And we have a special guest uh, joining us from California uh, to talk about that. Uh, as always, uh, we'll take your calls throughout the two hours. 244-1777 gets you through to me, and we will get to as many as we can. We are live on AM 550 and 96.1 FM and streaming on WDEVradio.com. It's Friday, March 10th. We have VT Digger. We've got the Times Argus, Seven Days, the New York Times, and other assorted media in front of us. And on our screen, the finals are set for the boys' basketball playoffs at the Barry Auditorium this Saturday. And Central Vermont teams are well represented. In the D4 final, you've got Mid-Vermont Christian from Queechee playing for the title. Hayes and Union Wildcats play Winooski in the D3 final at 3.30, as you've heard from Lee Cattell on the morning news service. And I was at the Hazen semifinal game last night in which they uh, bested Thetford Academy. A lot of old friends of mine there. Um, Hazen's a very good team, i got to say. They are well coached. And uh, Aaron Hill, I guarantee you, we're going to have Aaron Hill on the on the show because he he's been at that coaching uh at Hazen Union High School up in Hardwick for a long long time and he has a great program year after year and at 7:30 the icing on the cake 7:30 Saturday night Montpelier High School plays in its fourth title game in 4 years in the D2 final and guess what I have tickets so I'll see you all there. Please uh, send me a wave or uh, come say hello. I will be try sitting in try sitting in my usual seat, which is down front, front row of the bleachers with the old timers, uh, with John Pellegrini and a bunch of others um, at the north end, across from the benches. Uh, we'll be there. Uh, 
critiquing the uh, critiquing the referees, the coaching, the players, and uh, we'll try to keep John Pellegrini. Um, it's uh, we'll try to keep him from uh, rising out of his seat and doing what he's done in the past, apparently, which is when a ref makes a bad call, he'll take off his glasses and throw them on the court as a signal to the referee to uh, get better eyesight. <laughs> uh, those bleachers are great. Really great angles, but really, really uncomfortable. So when you're driving home, your back is is kind of is kind of tightened up. But uh, I'll be there. 7:30, Montpelier High School uh, plays in its fourth title game in four years. That should be that should be really exciting. A reminder that Bernie Sanders has secured a three million dollar earmark for the Barry Auditorium to pr- to improve the infrastructure over there, new heat, air conditioning, air conditioning, and a bunch of other improvements, all coming to the odd. But let's make sure they get. They do it right and don't lose the epic heritage of that place. So improve the infrastructure by all means, but, uh, but don't change, don't change its uh, essential identity. Greatest place to watch a basketball game ever. And, uh, I'll take your calls on that question. I just said it. Best place to watch a basketball game ever is the Barry Auditorium. Now, those of you from Philadelphia, uh, will say that the famous Palestra is is just as good or better a place. Uh, the Anderson High School gym in in Anderson, Indiana, uh, is is on that list. Uh, Patrick Gym, not a bad place to watch a game. Uh, anyway, I'll take your calls. We'll have a running uh, contest through the uh, uh, through the um, uh, the show. You know what? You know what another one is. Craftsbury Academy up in Craftsbury, Vermont. Great place to watch a game. Although the, the, I, I believe they have a new gym uh, up there. I haven't been there, but uh, I coached up there. And uh, a three-pointer from the corner would generally hit the uh, rafters in that old gym. Uh, great place to watch and uh, go to a game. Uh Anyway, we'll take your suggestions. Uh, the rules are you can uh, uh, send uh, in suggestions from anywhere in the country. Uh, I just said Anderson, Indiana. Uh, I believe Anderson, Indiana, or it might be Newcastle, has the, let's see, it's the largest high school uh, gym in the country, if I have that right. Okay, so I'll see you at the at the Barry Odd on at seven thirty. Oh, I have a technical issue. I bought my tickets online, so there's now a sign at the Barry Odd saying, "Please have your phone ready to show us your tickets." Uh, I have no idea what that means, so I'm going to have to have uh, a young technical person accompany me to the Odd to make sure that my tickets are valid on my phone. In other news, the Republican Party has sued the city of Winooski over its policy of allowing non-citizens to vote on social issues. Longtime Republican lawyer, Republican lawyer Brady Tensing filed the suit similar to the one against Montpelier in 2021, alleging that the power of voters, votes by citizens, is diluted when non-citizens are allowed to vote. Uh, we'll get into this with Courtney Lambden later at seven days because Burlington 
uh, passed a, a ballot item uh, on town meeting allowing non-citizens to, to uh, vote. In a refined plan, the state colleges uh, are – are, uh, are refining their, their, uh, getting rid of the books proposal. They're going to keep books since 2018. And, uh, Congressman Becca Ballant, boy, she, she knows how to make news. So yesterday she went to a luncheon meet and greet with lobbyists in Washington, D.C., according to VT Digger. These meet and greets are a way of life in D.C., but now after controversy about balance receipt of contributions from crypto billionaires and her pledges not to take corporate money. Digger writes that Ballant yesterday attended the event hosted by a corporate political action committee. And then in what's just as interesting to me, Ballant wrote a letter to the CEO of Ben and Jerry's of, of Unilever Corporation, the conglomerate that owns Ben and Jerry's. Uh, demanding answers about allegations of child labor uh, in within Ben and Jerry's ice cream dairy milk supply chain, and so uh, that I always thought attacking uh, Ben and Jerry's was the third rail of politics in this state, and she just breached it. Um, very terse letter to the CEO of Unilever. We will, uh, of course, Congresswoman Ballant has an open invite to come on this show, as do other statewide office holders from the governor on down. They are welcome on this show whenever they want. Um, so uh, that's the that's the headlines. Uh, we will uh, come back after this break. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we will be coming back after the break to talk about women's prisons with the American Civil Liberties Union. You're listening to WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back. Our guest is Falco Schilling, the advocacy director for the American Civil Liberties Union. Why would we have him on this show? I'll tell you. Governor Phil Scott has proposed uh, looking into the idea of building a new women's prison in Vermont, probably in the northwest part of the state, but it's a little unclear at the moment. Uh, that would cost a lot of money. And the uh, ACLU, under its Smart Justice Vermont campaign, wrote a letter to the legislature urging them not to go ahead with this. And Falco Schilling joins us on the show. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me today. So let's do the basics. Uh, what is the governor's proposal? Yeah, so I'm going to just gonna give you a little bit of background on this conversation that's been happening for a while. So I think really what folks should know is that here in Vermont we have one women's prison, and that holds both folks who are being held pretrial and folks who have actually been convicted of crimes or folks who have been brought back from the community because of what has occurred in the community under supervision. And I think one point of agreement on pretty much everyone in this conversation is that the facility is substandard for the needs of people who are living there. It was originally created as a facility to hold people pre-trial, so shorter term, not to spend longer term sentences in that building. And over the years, the state has moved the women who they incarcerate from facility to facility 
And most recently, they've ended up in the Chittenden Regional Correctional Facility, which is, you know, just out in, in South Burlington um, and is uh, holds right now approximately 100 women, um, give or take, depending on the day. And so in 2019, in particular, there was um, revealed um, some really horrific stories about sexual assault and other abuse happening within that facility which drove a lot of attention to say, what can we be doing to try and help people who are incarcerated there? And then there's been a large focus on the facility itself. What should be done to make the facility even better? So over the last couple of years, the legislature has spent a couple hundred thousand dollars studying what might a new prison look like. And since the beginning of this conversation, what the ACLU has been saying is, we need to not only look at what maybe one new prison might look like, but how do we do our system of corrections and is that even the right direction to go in? Because, as you said, these facilities cost millions and millions of dollars. And the focus from the administration has largely been, all right, we need to build one new facility. And the numbers they consistently put out far exceed the capacity of what's needed in the prison today. So um, during the pandemic, we saw incarceration numbers for the entire population drop dramatically. At the start of the, the pandemic, we were incarcerating about 1,650 people. And then um, it dropped all the way down to about 1,250. Right now, we're about 1,350 people. And then the women's population, it was up a little bit over 100, dropped all the way down to about 75, and it started to rise back up. The facility that's been put forward as a, po uh, as a possibility in front of the House Corrections and Institutions Committee right now is proposed to be 155 secure beds plus 30 reentry beds, and then the opportunity to expand that to another 50 reentry beds. And so... That could be a total of 235 beds for what's approximately 100 people who are incarcerated right now. So one of the main points of our letter is saying this construction that we undertake, if we move forward this, this could be infrastructure that we're looking at using for 50 years down the road. And before we start putting actual money towards construction, we should stop and step back and really answer three specific questions. One, are there better alternatives that are more community-based, more distributed, and lower security that could better serve people? as they're trying to re-enter their communities. Two, could we even reduce the prison population further from what we've done now? And the short answer to that from our perspective is definitely yes. There's a number of ways we can do that. And three, what are things we could be doing to help the people who are incarcerated now? Because this facility, even if it moves forward at the fastest pace possible, probably won't be built for another five to eight years. So when we got in front of the legislature recently, these are, these are the three questions we're asking them to answer before they're putting a down payment on construction. Um, even though I think there's a general agreement the facility there is inadequate, and that we need to be doing something different. So it seems to me that <clears throat> this uh, – it's, it's – it, well, let me see. I'm, 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 uh, I'm struggling to get the words. Uh, but this is always what happens. There's a gap. You know, a governor comes into office – uh, it's like a president coming into the office and getting the first meeting with the CIA when they tell him exactly how dangerous the world is. Um, it's it's similar with governors. They come into office and they promise uh, criminal justice reform and we're not going to put people in prison. We're going to put them in community settings. <laughs> and then they and then they arrive and the corrections commissioner comes in and says, "We've got a huge problem and we've got all these people and we have nowhere to put them." And we can either ship them out of state or we can build a new prison. And the governor kind of throws up his, his or her hands and says, oh, boy, we better look into this. And what you're saying is uh, 
we shouldn't even, you know, we should dispense with the notion of planning these, uh, you know, single building, uh, old fashioned, uh, badly designed, really expensive prisons. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. What we're saying is we need to think about how we look at our our corrections programs overall, and and that also goes beyond the correction system, but also into the judiciary and the court system. Because you know, one of the the, the main goals of the Smart Justice Vermont campaign are to reduce our prison population by fifty percent from our peak um, back in two thousand eight, and then also to combat the racial disparities that exist in our system, which are some of the worst in the country. And the, the thing that I, I think should give Vermonters a lot of hope is we have had some really impressive success in that. Since 2008, we've reduced our prison population by almost 40%. And much of that has been done by looking at reforms that, that say, do people need to actually be incarcerated based on what offenses they've committed? Are there better ways to repair the harm they've done? And are there better ways to help them rehabilitate so that they can become better citizens when they move out of the criminal legal system? And some of the ways that we've addressed that is, not locking people up for minor drug crimes. And uh, things like most recently, we saw one of the biggest drivers of incarceration was people being put out in community supervision by the Department of Corrections and then being brought back in for minor, minor technical violations, things like you know possibly having a drink or missing curfew, things like that. And that system has been overhauled. And that's part of where we're also seeing these reductions. And as we, we you know published five years ago, we published our Blueprint for Smart Justice, and that lays out a number of the different ways we can be looking at these problems and continue to reduce that population. So I think one of the higher level things we're saying is, you know, not only is the proposal looking to build bigger than the population is today, which we think is unnecessary, but also we could continue to reduce the number of people we incarcerate. And as we're looking at what a facility looks like, we need to take that into account. So we're doing this, this planning uh, correctly and with all the information in front of us. Uh, and one thing the committee has often heard as they've been talking about this is, Whatever decisions we make now last for 50 years. And so we think it's worth, one, trying to make think about what we can do now to help the people who are incarcerated. And while we're doing that, make sure we're getting all the information to get help decision makers think about what that system might look like. Or how many of those people actually need to be in a traditional, you know, traditional prison setting? How many of those people might be able to be in their communities or in a lower security community setting with some oversight and some treatment? that helps them build job skills and then work their way into the community and build those connections so that when they are released from an incarcerative setting or from the commissioner, the, the custody of the Department of Corrections, that they have the skills they need and they aren't cycling back into the system. And those are some of the things we're asking lawmakers to consider. Um, we've been asking for them to consider this for a number of years. This is you know, not anything all that new, but we appreciate that it's getting a good bit of attention right now because the numbers that the governor are putting forward, I think, are – raising some eyebrows and making people think about this. The, the actual proposal in the Capitol bill right now is saying we want a million and a half dollars this year, this next year, for planning and site selection of this prison, and then we want a $14 million down payment towards construction. And I think we've been moving along, we've been getting plans, and now people are starting to say, oh, we're at the point where we're getting much closer to actually committing ourselves to this proposal. And I think it also goes beyond just the women's facility. What we've seen from the contractors who worked with the administration have been brought in to think about this. They're also proposing a much larger facility that also would include about 600, um, you know, incarcerative beds for men 
and then more re- and then a build out of the Springfield facility, and a larger overall build about 900 beds, which could come in at an enormous cost, even you know close to half a billion dollars. So these, I think, are important questions to ask, not just about the the women who the state incarcerates, but also the men who we incarcerate, since that's the largest by far the largest proportion of people currently incarcerated by the state. And I think another thing just worth noting right now, you know, no one, no women incarcerated by the state of Vermont are being sent out of state. That's something that's happening with the male population. But I think we also need to look at how could we possibly bring those folks home with the hundreds of fewer people we're incarcerating than we were at the beginning of the pandemic. So I think especially if we have facilities that aren't in use and um, other options. So these are some of the things we're asking legislators to consider. And we've tried to put a menu of policy reforms in front of them that might help get at a lower prison population and and options that will better serve people as they're trying to reenter the community and also repair the harm that they've done. Uh, Falco Schilling is my guest. He's the advocacy director for the uh, Vermont chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, we're talking about uh, a proposal from the Scott administration to uh, to investigate the possibility of building a new uh, prison. Falco, uh, the, the, the number I'm looking at uh, in the capital bill of the budget, which is considered by the legislature, and it's currently in front of the House Institutions and Corrections Commission, each committee chaired by the dean of the legislature, Alice Emmons, who is from Springfield. She's a Democrat. She's been there for a thousand years and knows exactly what she's doing every step of the way. What would the, what's the price tag on all of this? I see 15 million thereabouts for design and investigation, but then 71 million to actually build the thing. Uh, but you don't think that's a real number. Well, those are the numbers we have right now in terms of the action proposal with the administration has put forward. What has also been shared in testimony um, by folks from the buildings and general services is that as we're looking at building new secure facilities, every single bed it will cost between eight hundred and nine hundred thousand dollars. So, as we've been looking at it, if you try and take those numbers and you extrapolate, you know, on top of one hundred and fifty-five secure beds. That would come up above $71 million. It, I'm, you know, I think it's worth asking questions about how does that play out? What do those numbers look like? But that's the rough estimate that's been given to the committee. And one of the things that's come up in the conversation, and folks have said over and over again, it's like, well, just don't worry about how many beds we're building. We'll figure that out later. We just need to keep moving forward. And the ACL, as the ACLU and as others have said, I think the bed numbers are extremely important. When you're talking about close to a million dollars per bed, and also the idea that if we're building out these large facilities, the state's going to be wanting to use them. And if that's where the resources end up being put, because we have these larger facilities, these larger, newer facilities, it's likely that folks would end up being incarcerated longer because that's where the services are, as, as opposed to putting money towards building out some more of these services in communities across the state, finding more distributed housing, and looking at how many people actually really need to be in a higher security facility. So, you know, if we're talking, this is, this is a lot of money for a very small population. And that's one thing that we continue to highlight. It, it's almost the analogy I think of is building new highways. Uh, when you build a, a new four lane highway, uh, it leads to more cars, not less congestion. Uh, and what you're saying is if you build a new prison, there's going to be an incentive 
for us as a society to lock people up to use that prison and make it worthwhile. Yeah, as we have, we're going to use the facilities we have. And I think that's, you know, when, when this problem is being looked at by folks who are looking for efficiency within buildings, that's the solutions you're going to be getting is a larger, more efficient facility. But that's what looking at more from a building perspective as opposed to a rehabilitative perspective. And what actually are the needs of folks who are incarcerated now? And what are their needs of their family and others? And that's one of the things that we're also really encouraging in this conversation okay. is to bring in the voices of the people who are directly impacted and the voices of people who are working with those communities right now to say, what is it that we actually need? We hear a lot about just All right. lighting. I got I to gotta break in, and uh, we've got to cut to a break. You're listening to uh, Kevin Ellis on Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We'll be back after these messages. We're back on VT Viewpoint on WDEV, the friendly pioneer. We're uh, we're talking to I'm Kevin I'm Kevin Ellis, your host. We're talking to Falco Schilling, the advocacy director for the Vermont chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union (ACLU), and we're talking about a proposal from Governor Scott to consider building for at least seventy-one million dollars uh, a new women's prison. Falco. Uh, has the governor's proposed does the governor's proposal say anything about where this site where this prison would go so right now that is not in the proposal itself and that's actually what they're looking for some of the money for is to say where might this facility be located but if you look at some of the proposals that have been put in front of the legislature i think you can get some pretty clear hints so the legislature they've contracted with this design firm called HOK and they've delivered a number of reports to the legislature about how they think we should overhaul our complete our correction system, not just looking at the women, but looking at the whole picture. And one thing that they've focused on is the idea of building a larger facility up in the northwest corner of the state, probably somewhere close to St. Albans. And this is something we've seen through a number of presentations, and is nothing has been decided on the site yet. But I think that that is where... There seems to be a lot of interest coming from the administration as well as the contractors that they've been working with. And that does raise some concerns just in terms of what that would mean for things like family connection. You know, all, you know, St. Albans is quite a bit away from places like, like Brattleboro and Bennington. And that's one of the reasons we want folks to think about are there ways that we can create a more distributed network to help, um, in terms of creating lower security, but appropriate housing and rehabilitation options for people who've been convicted of crimes um, to help keep them closer to families and then also help connect them to resources to help them reenter their communities. And when you look at our correction system as a whole right now, there are distributed facilities across the state, and that's one of the ideas. But with just one women's facility, um, that's harder to, you know, they're not, we're thinking that that same idea could be replicated, but on a much smaller scale. Okay, now. Uh, I hear you talking – I'm going to put on my tough-on-crime hat for a second here. Um, and uh, we've had Sarah – the Chittenden State's Attorney Sarah George on this show at least twice uh, to talk about reform of the entire system the way you're talking about. And But, but I'm duty-bound to say I meet uh, people all the time who uh, – Say, I will not walk down Church Street, uh, in Burlington at nighttime, and I won't walk through City Hall Park. Uh, you need 
to do something about these people uh, because they are dangerous. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, your way has been tried and it doesn't work. And there are just some people that you have to put away. So I think one thing to remember is Vermont continues to be one of the safest states in the entire nation. Uh, and so we have to contextualize that when people are sharing some of these things. But I think what's also worth remembering is we haven't really tried it because part of the part of how we actually get at trying to address crime is making sure that people have the services and the supports they need in the community before they end up resorting to crime or those crimes happen due to a lack of resources for things like substance use disorder or mental health conditions. So I think that's the first place that we will often point to. And this is something we've said over and over again, is that if we really want to address crime, we need to be making sure that people have the supports and services they need, things like housing, access to mental health care, and access to treatment for substance use disorder. And at the same time, I will also note that when we're talking about the, the women's population who are incarcerated now, half the people who are incarcerated in that facility right now have not been con- convicted of any crime. And this is what we're seeing throughout our system right now. We're seeing an increasing number of people being held pretrial before being convicted, and that's driving up the numbers of people who are incarcerated. So, you know, in this facility right now, we're talking about a population of about 100 people. And of that 100 people, 50 of them have yet to be convicted of a crime. And then when we look at the rest of the population, you break that down. There's a good number of those, you know, some of those people, I think, are best served in a more traditional high-security setting. Um, and that's something that I know that some of our friends that we work with all the time might disagree with what that setting might look like. But at the same time, I think a number of folks who you talk to the folks who are working in those facilities and working with these women, they say that's not exactly what they need. And by putting them in this a facility like that, that just continues to re-traumatize people and um, makes it harder for them to actually re-enter society, you're going to be driving up recidivism rates and making it harder for them down the road. Because when someone goes into prison, they lose so much. They lose connection to friends and family. They lose the ability to earn livable wages. And then when they're put back into the community, they're put up against so many, so many challenges, which sometimes leads them back into, uh, into committing crimes because that's the only option they have going forward. So I, I think one thing I would just circle back to say is that we need to think about make, trying to prevent crime in the first place by making sure people have the supports and services they need, and then also making it easier for people to actually get <laughs> out, of, out of the cycle of crime by making sure that when they, they have those supports and services when they reenter communities. So, so this is – okay, so the, what you're saying is instead of spending $73 million or, in your view, upwards of half a billion building a prison – why don't we spend some of that money on what's in front of the legislature right now, a paid family leave program, uh, more money for child care, universal school meals, uh, and putting in place the kind of services necessary to keep people out of prison in the first place. Uh, you've got – I hear your argument. Uh, I'm fascinated by the political messaging of this uh, to – a society that has been raised on the FBI and Perry Mason and Lord knows what else. 
Uh, it's a hard switch for people to make. And look at the, look at the state trying to cite a tiny little juvenile facility in Newberry. Uh, the citizens don't want it. So, uh, this is, uh, boy, this is a hard issue. Yeah, I think it, it's a hard issue. And I think one thing that we've seen recently is we've seen a major backlash to reforms that have happened in the last few years, especially after um, the murder of George Floyd from folks who really want to go back to a tough-on-crime era. And this is not just something we've seen here in Vermont. We've seen millions and millions of dollars poured into, especially these the, the last uh, round of elections, to try and convince people that they're less safe than they are. And when you spend millions and millions of dollars on advertising, that can actually have an impact. And so one thing we have to keep focusing on is saying, okay, what are the evidence, what would actually make people safer? And when we look at that, it's making sure that they have the supports and services they need as opposed to just trying to lock people up. That doesn't help reduce crime, and it only can it actually exacerbates it in the long run. So uh, the Democrats have a supermajority in the in the legislature. Uh, do you where do you see this coming out? I mean, if you break it down simply, I can see that some Republicans would support such a, a prison. Others, uh, but the, overall, the Democrats would not. Um, but uh, do you see this $15 million in the capital budget uh, getting approved this session? Well, I think this is not actually a partisan issue. When I've talked to different legislators from, from, I guess, all three sides of the aisle on this issue, what we're really asking for is more information before we're spending taxpayer dollars. Yeah. And I think that's something that resonates with people who identify as more conservative and then people across the entire spectrum. We've had some Republican members say, that makes a lot of sense. We do need to gather more information. And there might be smarter, more cost-effective ways to do that. And they might come at it from different perspectives. But I think there are places where we can agree on this in terms of just better use of taxpayer funds and how we try and address the problems in front of us. I don't know how this is going to come out in the end, what this is going to look like. But I think what we're really asking for is pretty common sense. We're just asking for more information but how we could do things at a possibly more cost-effective way and more effective way to actually serve our state and our communities. And so hopefully that message resonates you know, across the political spectrum on all, all sides of the, the multiple aisles and is something that can be taken up because I know folks have said over and over again, we're not putting a shovel in the ground right now, but before we do that, we should make sure we have all the options and have thought about it thoroughly so we know what the best way to move forward is. Uh- I want I want one more question before we take a break and let you go. Uh, the what you are saying, and I know that uh, Prosecutor George says this, um, and it goes against the way we have been all been raised in this country, which is uh, when someone commits a crime, they should be punished and sent to prison. And what you're saying and what we're beginning to realize is that as much as the victim of the crime wants some sort of revenge. Putting that person in prison is A, hugely expensive, and B, does nothing to make them uh, stop committing crime. So it, it all it is is an expensive uh, non-deterrent of crime that doesn't help the victims in the end anyway. And I think one thing I, I push back on just a little bit is many of these cases, that's not what victims want either. Right. They want to see someone 
actually admit to the harm that they've done and do work to try and repair it. And that's why we have tried to build out a system of, of community justice centers and other um, ways to divert people away from incarceration in the state. And that is, so I think on top of that, on top of the financial costs and actual, the actual needs, focusing on trying to repair harm as opposed to a punitive system is what we're trying to advocate for as we look at the system as a whole. Okay. As we say around here, serious subject for serious people. Falco Schilling, thank you very much. Uh, Falco Schilling, the advocacy director from the uh, ACLU in Montpelier. Uh, it's good of you to join us. We'll be talking about this down the road. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Love okay. to come back. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break and come back and kibitz about that a little bit. We'll take your calls, 244-1777. And uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's VT Viewpoint on WDEV. We're talking about whether the state should build a, a women's prison uh, somewhere for $71 million or more. I'm taking your calls to talk about it. 244-1777. Should we build a women's prison? Uh, it's, uh, we're going to spend, the governor wants to spend 15 million investigating the idea and 71 million, uh, building it. And the ACLU says it'll be much, much more expensive. So let's go to the phones and talk about this. Fred, you're on the line. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Morning. It's high overcast here in Newberry. <laughs> well, it's well, clear. Anyway. Clear as a bell here. Yeah, lucky for you. Hey, look, uh, it's very interesting. You've got the state police, and the Vermont State Police, and then you have the Vermont, uh, what is it, Bureau of Corrections. It, yep. It's unbelievable. It's just, it's just unbelievable. It is so difficult to get into the state police. You'll have to admit it. They don't take any Tom, Dick, and Harry. It's very difficult to get into state police. But Department of Corrections, that's a whole different story. I mean, it's easy compared to the state police to get in there. Department of Corrections, they have to deal with the most vulnerable people in society. So anyway, they don't get paid very much either. But the state police, they make a nice living. So I don't understand why to qualify for Department of Corrections, you shouldn't have to be as strictly uh, uh, looked over as the state police applicant is. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, does it make any sense to you? Well, um, uh, you know, come on, you know. Well, uh, both police and corrections officers are a very difficult job. Uh, I don't know. That's that right. I agree. I, I agree. But the problem is, being a correctional officer is a more difficult job, and the state knows it. But the state knows they can't get anybody to do the job. So well, they don't pay them very much, and they don't test them to find out what kind of people they are. Well, there's a chicken and the egg. Fred, thank you for the call. Uh, the the um, It's a chicken and the egg thing, I believe, which is, yeah, a correctional officer should be paid more, and if they were paid more, you would attract better candidates. Same with... Same with teachers, same with sports coaches, same with radio show hosts. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, the, we as a society do not value correctional officers enough 
to pay them a higher wage. Um, I, you know, I mean, we have an argument in this, in this society about whether we pay teachers. I know people who say we pay teachers too much. Uh, and then I know other people who say, uh, you know, teachers don't get paid enough. And if you paid every teacher a starting salary of a hundred thousand dollars, you'd attract better teachers. So it's a tough one. I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, that's, that's another piece of this. Should we build a new prison argument? Uh, staffing those facilities is very, very tough. Um, but that's, that's what's going to be covered in the, in the, the governor's, uh, study that he wants to do, uh, that is sitting in front of the legislature right now. Should we spend 15 million bucks investigating whether to build a hundred plus bed women's prison? Um, I, I, I can just hear what some of these reform prosecutors like Sarah George in Chittenden County would say. Absolutely not. Not worth the money. Um, and the, the new argument that I'm hearing that, you know, I mean, I, like everybody else, I grew up on cops, cop shows and the FBI on Sunday nights, uh, get the criminal, lock them up. But what I, what I heard from the ACLU from Falco Schilling was that when you lock somebody up in a, if somebody's from Bennington and you, and they commit a crime, they steal a car and you, uh, arrest that person, you charge them, they're convicted, they get two years in prison, uh, you send them up to, you know, the border, you build a prison up on, up in Enosburg Falls or, or, uh, you know, Alberg up near the border, um, that person is away from their family. Uh, that person is, you know, communication with their family is difficult. And the data is beginning to show that because of those impediments, rehabilitation is more difficult. And they come out of that prison angrier and more and less educated and less skilled and more in, more, um, susceptible to committing crime again. And that's not good for anybody, no matter what your politics, that's not good for anybody. So I can see, I'm trying to, trying to put my very conservative, uh, uh, you know, uh, Republican hat on here and say, you know, maybe we don't want to spend that money, uh, but here's the problem. It's, it's a tough political message to deliver to say, when somebody steals your car, uh, we're gonna put them on probation and we're gonna send them to a, a rehab program for mental health and drug addiction and, uh, because we think that by doing that they're not gonna commit crime. There are people who are victims of crime who want those people put away. And that is a part of society that we, you know, it's a reality and we have to deal with it. And you know what? That's why we have a legislature and they're gonna deal with this. We're gonna go to the call, to a call from Kathleen, who's on the show. Welcome Kathleen. Hi, so much, uh, thank you so much for having me. You know, I raised my children well, um, college, everything, but I have one that is on opioids. 
and has been addicted to opioids. Um, college or not, kids are great. I didn't mean it like that. Sure. But anyway, she's on opioids, and she went to jail, and she relapsed, and she went to prison. And we're just a normal middle-class family, <laughs> and she's in prison, and she's in prison um, in Alabama, and it's tough. And I think that, uh, and she's also in prison with, like, other criminals, not only opioid. Opioid is such a crisis. Anyway, the people that I have contacted that work there, uh, the guards, they have to love what they do. Just as a radio host has to love what they do, and you're very good. I love listening to you. You have to love what you do because they're very compassionate if they do. I've talked to some that have just consoled me over the phone and consoled her and brought her to the phone when maybe she wasn't supposed to be allowed to be on it. I, I just wanted to say that um, whether you work in the emergency room of a hospital or a prison or a teacher, if you love what you do, then you're okay with the pay, and hopefully the country would recognize, you know, maybe pay a little bit more so that people can love what they do and not work two jobs. And that's all. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Kathleen, uh, you are what makes this show really, really fun to do. Uh, you know, you, you have a show and you, you think, oh, you know, we're going to have the same old, uh, arguments, uh, the same old discussion. And then somebody calls in with the courage, uh, to talk about a personal issue like that. There, uh, she's dropped off the line, but, uh, love to talk to her more in the future because there's an example. Uh, her daughter, uh, committed a crime. Uh, she's in prison in Alabama. It's not like her mother, Kathleen, can drive down there uh, and visit her. Uh, it's tough. It's tough to get through on the phone. They don't have cell phones. They don't have internet. Um, and I'm, you know, and and you're surrounded by others in a pretty unhealthy environment. Now, can you can you make prison a healthy environment? Uh, well, there comes politics again because. Uh, it's it's just tough to spend money to justify to political leadership spending money on making prisons nicer and better. They're supposed to be places that punish people. So, again, tough issue, but uh, important. We are going to take a break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to go to Washington, D.C. Uh, with Bob Nay. Uh, I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on the friendly pioneer WDEV. We're back on Vermont Viewpoint. We're going to go right to Washington, D.C. and our D.C. correspondent, Bob Ney, to talk all things Washington. Bob, welcome to the show. Hello. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Oh, good. Okay. Uh, let's go right to Joe Biden throwing down the gauntlet on uh, budget cuts. Let me just go over it quickly. <laughs> Biden's budget plan would expand the ability of Medicare to negotiate, auction off rights to radio spectrum for $50 million, take new steps to reduce identity theft, target insurance companies who are bilking uh, Medicaid, end subsidies, scrap a $19 billion tax create break for real estate investors, tax people over $400,000 and go after billionaires, uh, all in an effort to cut the budget. It'll never pass, uh, but that's not the point, is it? No, it isn't. And you've accurately laid it out 
Uh, it's twofold. One, president submits a budget that they need to do that. It needs to be something real that they actually believe in. And then the House, of course, does a budget, and then the Senate takes the House budget, and then they change it or alter it, and it goes through that process. And I keep saying budget, but I've, as we've said on your show many times, we haven't had a budget in 15 years. That's right. We do continuing we, they, I'm sorry. We used to do budgets. They do continuing resolutions. And so it'll begin. And even though it is dead on arrival in the House, at least the president makes some statements. It would have reduced the deficit, I think, around $3 trillion in his budget over a 10-year period. So it's a guideline, and it's, and it's a beginning. But, uh, Bob, for the political junkies uh, in our audience, and there are many, this is really about uh, the, the politics of looking like you're trying to be sit around the kitchen table and balance your your home budget and it's about the politics of the debt ceiling and now Kevin yes. McCarthy the speaker of the house has to respond right well that's right i mean you you nailed exactly what it's about and the problem is and that's why i always uh, i try to actually avoid the word budget today i'll use budget cuz the president is submitting a budget but the way the system used to run, 13 appropriation bills, sometimes 12, sometimes 13, would go through the House one by one, line by line, amendments, you know, et cetera. Then all 13 would go to the Senate. Then they would create House, Senate together, a budget. And that's where they were forced to sit down. And it wasn't necessarily all Republican, you know, votes sometimes, but sometimes not. But it was a long process. Now what happens is people hear, oh, debt ceiling, we're going to go over the edge, we're on the brink, and then Congress, quote, solves it, the House and Senate. But the word you'll hear is not budget, but continuing resolution. They spend a little on domestic, they spend a little bit on defense, and then they, quote, kick the football down the field without doing budgets for the most part. So maybe this year, maybe. Uh, at least that's a commitment from the Speaker of the House, there'll be a budget process. So we shall see. But yes, this is all tied to the debt ceiling, making their point of where they think they ought to be on this. And this, of course, Bob, is why people despise Congress. Uh, let me ask you a question that I think everybody in our audience would ask. Uh, this list of, of cuts that Biden is going to release, uh, I can see a scenario in which, you know, my uh, back here in Vermont, I can see re- conservatives and liberals uh, coming together around such an agenda. Cut the budget in order to save Medicare and Social Security. Uh, cut out as much waste as you can. And Jeff Bezos at Amazon should pay his fair share of taxes. Yep. I'm not understanding why... Both sides of the aisle can't come together around some sort of deal in that arena. Well, you're right. And they should be able to come together over those issues and prescription drugs. Right. And, you know, and, and saving the process because and, – and this is, I think, the point that has to be made. And this is what people are tired of. You know, if – if they don't come to some types of agreements, just what you mentioned, the end result one day, if you care about domestic spending or if you care about Social Security or you care about defense spending, whatever you care about, one day it is all going to be in trouble. We can't sustain uh, you know, 
16, 20, 25 trillion dollars in deficit. And of course, all your listeners have to sit down and they can't go to their bank and say, I'm depositing 3,000 a month. Let me write checks for 5,000 a month. Now, actually, yeah. if any of them know a bank that does that, please, I'll do my banking. Yeah, I, I often wonder, I often, we get, uh, get into this, uh, this, you know, he said, she said uh, thing in DC. I often wonder if Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, one day couldn't wake up and just say, you know what, President Biden, I'll take that deal. Let's do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right. I, it seems to me they'd be heroes, but I, there's something I'm missing well. here. No, you're right, because let me throw out two names that sound like oil and water, but Clinton and Gingrich. Right. And what did what happened? Five balanced budgets. Right. 1998, the first balanced budgets in generations. And again, Clinton and Gingrich. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, history has shown it can happen, but somebody's going to have to have the will uh, for it to happen, and then everything has to be looked at and analyzed and you know debated, yeah. which is the old way it used to be done. Sure. Okay, now, uh, I have some listeners in Washington, D.C., and they are angry. The Senate voted Wednesday to block changes to D.C.'s criminal code that would have reduced penalties for some violent crimes. As we all know, D.C. is not a state, and it is controlled by the Congress of the United States, and uh, in a kind of a bipartisan way, a lot of politics here, even the president uh, agreed with this. And boy, some residents of D.C., they are steaming. Oh, they are furious. And of course, uh, D.C. has a delegate, uh, Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, who I worked with quite a lot because I chaired House Administration. So we had a lot of you know contact with the District of Columbia and where we would place certain things throughout the district. And again, it is a district. It's not a state. So it's got this hybrid sort of system. Now, honestly, over the years, uh, D.C. had made a lot of decisions. Mayor Marion Barry came in. He had a lot of controversy, as we know, you know, with his uh, scandals. So as a result, then Congress took more control back. Then uh, a couple of new mayors came in, and Congress relinquished some of the control, you know, back uh, to the mayors more. And then the council now has passed, uh, you know, this change in the in the crime laws, and it caused such a stir, a political debate. And let me just go to the Democratic side only for a minute, because it caused such a debate within the Democratic side. You know, they're being hit. A lot of the, quote, blue cities, blue states, Democratic members, et cetera. And I don't think the White House fully realized the heat on some of these seats that are marginal seats controlled by Democrats. But, you know, they're shaky seats, as we would say. Right. So when this vote came up, it was overwhelming in the House and Senate. A lot of Democrats went on board and said, no, we are going to basically override the decision of the city council, which, by the way, overrode the mayor of D.C.'s vote. So for, you know, the members there that are in the tough districts, this was a good vote, but they're getting a lot of heat as Democrats, especially from residents of Washington, D.C. I've got some friends out there that are absolutely furious (laughs) over 
Congress overriding. Yeah, my son who lives in the district, he's one of them. Um, uh-huh. Okay, 41,000 hours of January 6th security footage in the hands of Tucker Carlson at Fox News. Uh, I even hesitate to go here. We could talk about it for an right, hour, yeah. but uh, but the bottom line is that uh, that uh, well, first we learned that the Fox News hosts didn't believe the, the fake election allegations by right. the by the Trump people, yet they were telling their viewers something different. And now they're they've got all this these outtakes from footage that we haven't seen, and they're parlaying it into uh, the January sixth uh, situation wasn't that bad. Right, and of course, Sucker Carlson. Now there's emails where he said how much he hated Donald Trump, and but yet, you know, he's now defending, you know, the the election process, et cetera. And Tucker Carlson has taken out some points out of this footage to show people walking through the Capitol, and the word, I think he used the word sightseers, you know, yeah. that came up. Yeah, uh, and the bottom line is, 100 police were injured. Um, the, people had no business being in the Capitol. Uh, that's just my opinion, you know, but I used to be in charge of the, of the house side for the speaker when I chaired house administration, I was in charge of the Capitol Hill police. We have 100 police were injured. Uh, a policeman died and Tucker Carlson said, well, look, he, he looked okay. Well, he was still considering, you know, continuing his duties, but he dropped dead the next day. Yeah. And, um, so you know, there's no question that you know there was there was violence. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican members following up by visiting people in jail. Let me just tell you this: inside Washington, if they could speak as I'm speaking now, a lot of Republicans want this to go away. They want it to stop. They don't like this. Yeah. A lot of members of the, of the of the House and Senate. But Tucker Carlson, you know, it's ratings, and so he is doing what he wants to do with the footage. But the bottom line is it is very hard to say, you know, oh, these were sightseers. Really nothing happened that day. I mean we we can see the vast majority of the footage. We've seen it. Yeah. Bob, our time is always too short. Highlight of the week. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Okay. We're going to come back right after this with Courtney Lambden from Seven Days. We're going to talk about town meeting results in Burlington, among other things. And uh, you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis on WDEV. We are back. I'm Kevin Ellis on Vermont Viewpoint. And our guest is Courtney Lambden from Seven Days. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. So you are the Burlington expert uh, at Seven Days. <laughs> and uh, I would remind you, uh, a fair warning that Paula Routley and I shared a desk in the Burlington Free Press newsroom once upon a time. Ah, excellent. Oh, yeah. Yes, this old story days of the street. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. It seems to me that town meeting is the return of Moreau Weinberger. Why don't we start there? Yeah, the Dems uh, certainly had a, a big night on Tuesday. Um I guess starting really with the defeat of a ballot item that Mayor Weinberger had come out against um, very strongly, and that was a an item that would have created a new police oversight board. Um, the, the city already has a police commission, but their oversight abilities are somewhat limited. This new board would have uh, allowed its members to 
directly hand down discipline um, and even fire officers uh, in the city. So Moreau really came out against that. He started a political action committee to defeat it, uh, raised a fair amount of money for Burlington politics, and um, it, it worked. It, the administration was able to, um, you know, convince enough people that it's a bad idea. So the police commission goes down. Uh, there's a there's a, a, a carbon fee on new development. There is uh, non-citizens can vote. Um, and uh, there's one in there's another big one that I'm missing what what happened? I mean, a, a year or two ago, Moreau Weinberger. I mean, he beat, he wins re-election by uh, under ten votes, and uh, he seems to be on the ropes politically. And now uh, the Democrats are now running the city again. Yeah, you know that's a, a point of contention. I've I've been in a bit of a Twitter debate <laughs> with a, with a prominent Dem in Burlington over whether they truly have a majority or not. Yeah. Um, I argue that they have a plurality. They have six members of a six-person council, right. although they do have um, one independent counselor who is, um, you know, sympathetic to their agenda. So with that, yes, they will be able to kind of um, advance a lot of initiatives, perhaps, that, that Moreau wants. But, yeah, you're totally right. Just, you know, a couple of years ago, he almost lost City Hall. So I think what's happened is, uh, you know, it, it kind of depends on who you ask, but I guess my analysis of it is that public safety has become his, you know, big issue, um, really connecting some of the upticks in certain crimes, not all crime, uh, to this, you know, vote in June 2020 that was led by the progressives, although supported by some Democrats. People forget that part. Yeah. Um, to reduce the size of the police force. So I think that messaging has really taken hold in the city and could potentially explain why why the council in the city looks the way it does now. Well, it's, you know, as a lover of Church Street and, and the new City Hall Park, I was walking down Church Street at dusk recently and, and we turned right at Lunig's and the women in the group said, I will not walk through City Hall Park. And when that when that starts happening, uh, you know the, the facts be darned, it 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 casts a pall over people and it hurts the city. And I'm not surprised that the mayor goat went in that direction and that uh, this happened. Yeah, I mean, we certainly hear a lot about that. You know, like there there are the statistics, and then there's how people feel, right? Which is are is much harder to measure but is still a real thing, um, a real feeling that people have that you can't really argue with. So um, if people feel unsafe and they feel that the mayor's plan will make things better in Burlington, then, you know, it's not surprising that they would vote the way that he would, he would want. I see that the, uh, that the city has now hired a new fire chief. Uh, I don't know if you've written about that, but uh is that is that a big development or just uh, you know kind of more of the same? Yeah, I didn't write about it, but I did attend the um, press conference yesterday. Um, the the off the uh, chief that they selected has been there for a number of years, and yesterday uh, Chief Lachance, that's his name, um, he spoke about um, you know 
the fire department's role in responding to public safety issues that are, are more you would think are related to crime or disorder, things like people having a mental health crisis. Uh, in Burlington, the fire department and emergency medical system are one and the same. So every time someone calls and says, you know, someone is, is potentially on drugs or, or whatever, uh, EMS responds. They respond, respond to overdoses. And so yesterday, uh, the, you know, the chief uh, spoke about, you know, what is going to be his department's role in kind of part of this, this new direction that the city's trying to go in, which is a, a kind of a crisis response team uh, where, you know, the city is hoping to use state grant funds to create uh, a new model where police may not necessarily respond. I'm not entirely sure how EMS fits, will fit in with that, but the mayor said that those conversations are just sort of beginning now. Um, with, back to the police for a minute, Courtney, because you are uh, the acknowledged and well-known expert on the trials and tribulations of the Burlington Police Department. Um, where do where do we go now with the Burlington Police still way down in numbers? The, the mayor says he wants to rebuild the numbers and is doing so slowly. Uh, but where do he and the council go with the police now that this commission is off the table? Yeah, so I think that is the big question. I think um, I, I expect, and the mayor acknowledged yesterday, that he plans to bring Acting Chief Murad forward for another formal vote, since now he has the votes to officially appoint him as permanent chief. Um, so we can expect that that will happen. But as far as the oversight, it's sort of an open question. There has been this uh, proposal to empower the existing police commission, which is led by civilians that are appointed by the mayor and the, and the city council, to give them potentially more oversight ability. There's been an ordinance that was proposed that wouldn't require a charter change, so it's a, it's a much lower bar for approval. Um, but that work has really stalled, and I think everyone expects that to ramp up again now that this other item failed at the polls. But what, you know, the council, how the council will change it or what they think about it, we don't really know. Um, we just know that the mayor has said he he doesn't like the current system and he didn't like this other proposal. But we haven't really seen what he will support. Okay. Uh, Courtney, what did you learn from town meeting that the rest of us should know or that you did not expect? Anything? Hmm. That's a good, good question. I mean, everything we had the mayor on the show and everything he supported pretty much passed. Uh, and so I, you know, there's that, there's that carbon fee on development, which I thought would make him quite nervous, but, uh, he said everyone seems fine with it. Yeah, that was, he did support that. That was something that, you know, Burlington Electric proposed, like it, it came from his own administration. So, um, yeah, he definitely was in support of that. He, another thing that we didn't talk about that he, uh, that he was opposed to is this other item called Proposition Zero, right. which would have allowed residents to place ordinances on the ballot directly and non-advisory questions. Um, you know, the mayor was opposed to that. That went down. So as far as something that, that surprised me though about the results, um, um, I, I wasn't really surprised. 
I feel I felt like, you know, after covering, you know, the city and, and the, the kind of public safety debate since June 2020, I, the writing was kind of on the wall. You know, I, the, the progressives were able to hold on to the central district, which is mostly like the old North End, where, which has been a progressive stronghold for decades. So that was not surprising. Um, but these other races, you know, it, it really was a toss up. There were strong candidates in all races, but it didn't really surprise me that it ended up the way it did just because of the types of conversations we've been having in Burlington about public safety and how Moreau has really made that his his platform, his issue. Um, I mean, what's going to be interesting, though, is that we're we're getting close to another mayoral race. So I'm not sure what this means for Moreau. I, I, I haven't asked him yet, but he, he has some momentum which could, you know, arguably deliver him another term should he choose to run. I don't know. Did you ask him about it? I, I did not. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, shame on me. I did not. I will race you. I'll I'll put in a request mm. to have him on the show, and we'll ask him to see if we can beat you to the punch. All right. Yes. If you get the scoop, more power to you. Uh, Courtney Lambden, I got before we let you go. I got to say, uh, the. Uh, your boss, Paula Routley, writes a uh, a column in every uh, week in the paper, and this we, this week's column focused on you and the the <laughs> your obsession with all things Burlington, uh, and uh, it was uh, just a great piece. And uh, if you, everybody just go to sevendaysvt.com dot uh, com and you can read it or get the paper anywhere you see it and uh, leaf through to about page five and. It's a love letter to Courtney Lambden, our guest today. So, <laughs> yes, it's nice to be recognized. I, I don't love the attention, but it is. It is very. It was very kind, and and my editors and Paula said some very nice things. So. Uh, where can we? F- I'm going to follow you on Twitter immediately, so we can follow your argument with the Democrats about whether the <laughs> city council's now in Democratic hands or not. Um, where can people find you on Twitter? Yeah, this is not a, a normal thing for me to do. So you might be disappointed that this is the only Twitter battle I get into. But my Twitter handle is at C Lambden, L-A-M-D-I-N. So have fun. Oh, gosh. We are going to have so much fun. <laughs> Courtney Lambden, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Say hi to everybody at Seven Days, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. Okay. It is it is uh, a great example of local journalism fueling and strengthening democracy. Uh, when you've got people like Courtney Lambden on the beat and on the case, and boy, are they irritating to the mayor, the police chief, the fire chief, the city council, because they're asking the questions that uh, that politicians just don't want to be asked because it's their – uh, it's just in their nature, and uh, but they do it, and we honor it. And uh, Courtney Lambden in seven days doing the job. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. Uh, you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we are coming back to talk about the Oscars and films with film critic and book editor and raconteur Keenan Ellis. You're listening to WDEV. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? 
Let the Radio Vermont Group digital services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. We're going to go from prisons and politics to films and the Oscars, the annual ceremony in all its pomp and celebrity self-congratulation is this Sunday night, and you can watch it on actual television. Our guest, all the way from California, very early in the morning, is film critic, writer of podcasts, books, and editors of podcasts, and all-round deep thinker on all things film and television. His name is Keenan Ellis, and he is on the line from California. Welcome. Hello. Well, thank you for having me. I just crushed a cup of coffee, and I'm ready to go. And and uh, full disclosure, he is my son, uh, but that doesn't matter uh, because he knows what he's talking about. Okay. <laughs> Let's start with the lineup of films. You've seen them all. I've seen most of them. I'll go through it really quickly. All, all Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Innershin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun, Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. Uh, what do you like? What's the best film? And what do you make of what's going to happen Sunday night? Um, well, uh, first of all, I think this has just been a really great year for film. Uh, there are some times when uh, the Oscars can't fill the requisite 10 films. And so the last three or four films nominated are a little embarrassing for everybody. But um, I will say, I think most of these films are absolutely exceptional with the only one kind of being embarrassing. Um, I yeah, let's start with uh, probably my favorite movie of the year, uh, which is The Banshees of Inishirin. Yeah, uh, which is written and directed by the Irish uh, playwright Martin McDonough, who's known for writing incredibly dark uh, but moving uh, Irish uh, chamber pieces. Um, and he, in recent years, has graduated the film with one of my favorite movies of the past 15 years, In Bruges, which also stars the two leads of The Banshees of Inishir and uh, Colin Farrell and Brandon Gleeson. This movie is uh, takes place on the small island of Inishirin, and it's about two friends where one of them uh, wants to just stop being friends with the other and kind of the fallout from this break up and it talks a lot about um just uh what what it means to be uh friendly and what it means to be cruel and um a lot of and it digs quite deeply into depression despair and suicidal ideation it's a bit of a uh, a bummer <laughs> at the end but it's it's definitely one of the more gorgeous movies of the year and with some of the best acting performances you're likely to see. So I, if I had, if I had my way, I think I would give best picture to the Banshees of Inisherin. Um, but it's, that's unlikely to happen because of the, um, popularity of, uh, what probably the weirdest movie ever nominated for best picture, which is everything everywhere all at once. Did you see this? No, I did not, but I do know that the star is the same guy who was the little sidekick to Harrison Ford in one of the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, movies. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Kihi Kwan is his name. And uh, he's come back after 30, 30 years of retirement from uh, acting. And he plays the husband to uh, the main character, who's played by Michelle Yao, who, if you remember, uh, growing up, we watched a lot of Jackie Chan movies, and she was uh, one Jackie Chan's partner in the movie Super Cop. And so she's this great uh, action film star uh, who's uh, come back and gives a really moving performance as a mother, an overbearing mother to a... Um, to her daughter, and then uh, uh, hijinks ensue when she realizes that she can access different alternate realities of herself. Uh, it is an incredibly weird movie. Um, you get to journey to different alternate realities where anything is possible. These realities include uh, where she she's a hibachi chef, she's a movie star, she is in a world where she has hot dogs for fingers. She is a rock. Um, and it's absolutely ridiculous and absurd, but it never loses sight of the emotional core of the movie, which is about her and her daughter. And uh, it's quite moving and is by far uh, uh, the front runner for this uh, movie. And I, I really hope you see it because it is by far the weirdest movie that will ever be nominated for an Oscar, and it, but it might actually win, which is the most exceptional thing. Do you mean to tell me that Top Gun is not going to win the Oscar for Best Picture? <laughs> Come on! So I, I mean, I think Top Gun... Uh, no, I don't think Top Gun is going <laughs> to win the best, <laughs> best picture, but not for not being the best picture of the year. I think you could easily make an argument that this is absolutely the best picture of the year and i know people that would say it's the best picture of the decade um i I think this is as as good a blockbuster film as has ever existed uh unfortunately uh the oscars likes to think of itself as uh, a more well-to-do uh uh yes association so taste taste makers yeah, yeah, I think they're much more likely to give the Oscar to an art film than to a blockbuster. And uh, if you if you want proof of that, just look at Tom Cruise, probably our greatest movie star, um, who was not nominated for uh, acting in this role and has never won an Oscar for his years and years and years of incredible work. I'm a big, big Tom Cruise fan. Um, and I think if you want to have a good time at the movies this year, you should watch Top Gun Maverick, and then you should watch Top Gun Maverick again because it is just that good. And and don't despair, Tom Cruise fans, because and I'm one too, um, because a new Mission Impossible movie is coming out, right? Two new Mission Impossible movies are coming out. He filmed them back to back. Fantastic. Um, it's amazing. There's a 10-minute... Uh, documentary on how they uh, filmed him driving a motorcycle off of a cliff. I saw that. <laughs> it's 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 honestly that ten minute documentary is better than the movie Elvis. <laughs> okay. Oh, speaking of Elvis, I love the Elvis movie, and you don't <laughs> like it. Tell us why. Um, it's, it's directed by a guy named Baz Luhrmann, who I have had a 
I wouldn't call it a love-hate relationship with. I would call it just a hate-hate relationship with the most of my entire life. He's directed movies like The Great Gatsby, uh, Moulin Rouge, Romeo plus Juliet. Um, and he's the ultimate style over substance director. Um, I, I find his movies to be filled. With, hmm. I, I want to be fair because I know a lot of people like this movie quite a bit. I personally don't, and this is the great thing about movies. It's all about taste. And if you like, the, well, if you like Baz Luhrmann, if you like these movies, good for you. Uh, continue watching them. I find it to be Baz Luhrmann running around and throwing glitter in my face, and it's I, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's it's interesting for for people of a certain generation, and I'm one of them. Uh, Elvis is sort of central to our lives. And it, I had not realized that basically after his, he became successful, he basically gets locked up in a contract in Las Vegas, playing to the crowds mm-hmm. every night and gets uh, hooked on drugs and can't get out of the contract and can't go back to play the music he really likes doing. And I, I, yeah. it, it was, that was an incredibly sad revelation in the movie that I really didn't know about. Yeah, yeah, it, it's absolutely true, and um, I, I think that is. And I, I, I hate to keep bashing on it, but I do. I do think people's connection to Elvis, and I love Elvis too, is what carries that movie, and um, yeah. not the actual movie itself. If that makes sense, that does. Okay, All Quiet on the Western Front. In preparation for this show, I tried to yeah. watch it. I lay down on the couch and I was asleep <laughs> in five minutes. And I know it's important, and I know it's the greatest war novel of all time, but yes. I couldn't get through it. Not uh, uh, completely understandable. I I struggled to get through this as well. It's uh, it's it, it is one of those movies that is important to watch, but traumatizing to get through. It's um, I, a couple years ago, 12 Years a Slave came out and I watched that movie alone in a movie theater in New York and cried for about two hours straight and realized this was most, the best movie of the year, but I could never watch it again. And All Quiet on Western Front is similar to that, but not as good. Uh, <laughs> it is a traumatizing movie. It takes, as the book does, a unblinking um, vision of World War One at its worst, and if you know anything about World War One, it's probably our worst, most unpleasant war. Um, I struggle to watch. I, I struggle to get through it as well. It's it's a, a harrowing experience. But if you like war movies, I don't think you could get you could get a more technically well made war movie than this. Okay. My text messages are blowing up here from dedicated viewers. And here's a question for our film expert. Why are so many of these nominations downers? Is it too hard to make a comedy that wins? Kenan, what's the answer uh, to that? Uh, the answer, we, we already covered this. The Oscars really likes to see itself as a serious institution. And uh, this is why most of the time uh, comedies are not nominated and animated films are not nominated because there is a, uh, well, a kind of stigma against such films. And so the more art films, the more uh, it's 
the more depressing films there are, the easier it is to say, hey, we're, we're a serious institution. Take us seriously. Well, for what it's worth, Danny, the producer of this show, thinks that Ron Burgundy and The Anchorman is the greatest movie of all time. I, I can't really disagree with you on that. I, I think it's the funniest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> okay. And let's. Yeah, Will Ferrell definitely deserves the best acting nomination for that. Let's get to best actor, best actresses. Um, it seems to me that uh, Tar, which I have not seen, Kate uh, Blanchett has got to be our greatest living actor at the moment. I agree. I totally agree. And if you do not agree, go watch Tar. Uh, I think the best actress is really between Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yao in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, but since we've already talked about her, let's talk a little bit about Kate Blanchett. Yes, she's been on the level of our like Daniel Day Lewis's and our Marlon Brando's for the past 15 years uh, or so now. And Tar is kind of her crowning achievement. Um, she is absolutely a force of nature. And if you ever just want to see uh, the best actor alive, uh, you know, go for 60 points in a game to use an NBA reference. It's, it's Cape Blanchett in tar. It's an unbelievable performance and really fun to watch and surprisingly funny for an art film. And, uh, I, again, I have not seen everything everywhere all at once, but I see the name of Jamie Lee Curtis. She of the great horror <laughs> movies of my childhood has reemerged and is nominated as best supporting actress. She absolutely is. I mean, she is, uh, honestly a front runner to win. Um, it's a smaller part, um, a really fun part. She plays an IRS worker and she does it. Uh, she's overweight and ugly and, uh, and hilarious in the movie. And, uh, but I think if she wins, I think it'll be more for, uh, more of a lifetime achievement award. Um, the Oscars often give out such awards where they say, well, it's time for this actor, even if the role isn't particularly that impressive. Um, Jeff Bridges, for instance, uh, one of our best actors, won the best actor for a small role uh, in Crazy Heart a couple of years back. Yeah. It wasn't the best. He wasn't the best actor of the year, but they wanted to give it to him. And so I think Jamie Lee Curtis could definitely win the Best Supporting Actress just because we all love her so much. And... uh and she deserves it for her career rather than this role. Boy, she got killed in a ton of times in a lot of a lot of <laughs> horror movies when I was a kid. Okay, let's do let's do predictions. Let's just go down yeah. the line. Best picture. Uh, best picture. Uh, I would. I'm going to go with my heart and say Banshees of Inisherin. I think this is the best picture of the year. Yeah, I saw it. Great film. If you if you have any Irish in you, uh, watch the film. Uh, okay, best actor. Uh, best actor. Um, I'd go with Colin Farrell from The Banshees of Inisherin. He plays kind of a dim, kind man who can't understand why his friend has broken up with him, and it's really heartbreaking. And I I love Colin Farrell. He's uh, secretly one of our best actors. So. Yeah, and my choice for best uh, actress in a supporting role, just to go off script here, is Carrie Condon in Banshees of Inner Sheeran. She was fantastic. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Uh, okay, best actress. 
Uh, best actress, I, I, I'd go Carrie Condon as well. Um, Angela Bassett for Black Panther is amazing as well, but I think Carrie Condon's performance is incredible. Okay. Now, this thing takes place on Sunday night on normal television, correct? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but, yeah. but to see I'm these... A cord cutter, I don't know how I'm going to watch it. Right, if you're a cord cutter. Right, <laughs> if you don't have Comcast. Uh, uh, so... And you're listening to a radio station, Keenan, where a woman called in yesterday and said she doesn't have the Internet and she still listens to us on her 35-year-old transistor radio. Um, hey, more power to her. Good good for her. Right. And so this is going to be probably on ABC at, oh, I don't know, 10 o'clock and go for five hours. Who is the host? Um, the host is Ariana DeBose. I'm going to butcher her last name. She won uh, Best Supporting Actress last year for West Side Story. Ah. Um, and she she's a Broadway star and can sing and dance and is hilarious. And um, So uh, hopefully we'll get a lot of uh, uh, musical performances. And, uh, yeah, she's fantastic. Okay, so, uh, so you can't see these uh, films in theaters anymore, so you can see them on the Internet. So tell our audience how they can watch these films. Um, a lot – you can rent them all on Amazon um, or Apple TV if you want. Um, the Banshees of Inishirin you can find on HBO Max, everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, you can watch on Paramount Plus or Hulu. Um, Top Gun Maverick you can also watch on Paramount Plus. Uh, um, Tar is a uh, do do do. You can uh, rent um, on Amazon. As well as uh, Elvis, I you know I don't think you should watch it, but I, if you want to, it's on HBO. Uh, Avatar: The Way of Water. I really suggest watching this in a, on as big a screen as possible. And James Cameron is making sure that you only can you cannot watch it on the internet. You have to go to the movies. All Quiet on the Western Front. You can go to Netflix. Uh, the Fablemans. I just watched this the other day by Steven Spielberg. It's quite good. Uh, you can uh, rent that on Amazon. Triangle of Sadness, you can watch on Hulu. And Women Talking, uh, you can watch on Amazon Video. I know I went through that quickly. But, can't the, yeah. you know, instead of Medicare for All, can't the government just do uh, films for all so we have one streaming service? It'll probably be I, really expensive. That's a much bigger uh, show. <laughs> uh, we need a lot more time to cover that, but we do seem to be heading back towards a uh, a single streaming service, or at least a package that basically is just going to be cable TV again. Yeah. So we're we're going back in time to cable TV. Uh, and we will discuss all these issues after the Oscars. We'll have you back again uh, right in this slot. So enjoyable to have you, Keenan Ellis. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay. There it is. There's your there's your guide, your roadmap to the Oscars Sunday. I might have to go to somebody's house and watch. That is our show for today. Thanks to Keenan Ellis, Courtney Lambden, Bob Nay, and uh, Falco at the ACLU. What a great show. Uh, you can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Remember, this show becomes a podcast where you can listen on your own time at wdevradio.com. Click on the podcast button and please like us. You can find me 
at kevinkellis.com. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter, which is called Conflict of Interest, and subscribe to my my podcast, which just dropped today. First guest, Maggie Haberman, who appeared first on this show in Waterbury, Vermont, and we are taking her over to over to the podcast. I'm on Twitter, where I'll follow Courtney Lambden about all things Burlington, and I'll be back next week. As always, we're going to talk uh, COVID and masks with the founder of the N95 Project, Ann Miller from Essex, Vermont. As always, we'll talk politics and the nation, the snow in my dooryard, and everything everything else on my mind and yours. Remember, Barry Auditorium, D4 game at noon, D3 game at 3.30, and I will be at the Montpelier game, the final, at 7.30. I'll probably line up at 6 to get in the door. I've already bought my tickets. They're on my phone. Don't really understand how to show them the tickets on my phone, but I suspect there'll be enough young people that can walk me through it. See you at the Barry Aud on Saturday night. Our show is directed, produced, engineered, and managed by the master, Danny McGivergan. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you back here Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.